This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So it's good to be back. We are remote this week. From your backdrop, George, it kind of looks like uh, you're in the jungle. I mean, it's kind of quite a bit of foliage behind you there. I assume you're not doing a, a Nigel Farage. You're not in Australia, are you? I have not reached that uh, point in my low point in my <laughs> career. Now, I am in New York in uh, quite a fancy hotel, very near the Trump Tower. And yesterday I saw a man wearing a Trump mask and a huge crowd of tourists taking photographs of him outside. I was pretty sure it wasn't Trump himself. Look, you never know. You never know. I mean, he did look surprisingly similar to him with a red tie on and that suit. And he was doing his thumbs up to the crowds. So they loved it. Well, you've been away missing a wild week in politics here, a showdown vote for the Prime Minister, which he managed to win in the end. But um, the ongoing issue of the Rwanda bill is going to be dominating politics right through Christmas into the new year. So we're going to talk about that first and what it tells us about Rishi Sunak's week. Yes, quite a week for him, but also quite a week for the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, who's been here in the United States uh, trying to shore up American support for Ukraine. Now there's a crunch summit in the EU about whether they're going to continue their support. So it's a pretty pivotal moment for that country, engaged as it is in this brutal war for its survival. And then we're going to talk about something people may not have seen, the decline of the UK stock market. I'm not talking there about the value of shares in the stock market, but there's been a sharp fall in the number of companies listing in London. In fact, companies choosing to list in New York instead. Some even saying they're going to shift their listing. The lowest level in six years is 
the British stock market in decline. Why is that happening? Should we worry about that? We're going to talk about that third. But first of all, bring you up to speed with um, events here in Britain. We've had uh, the Conservative factions describing themselves as mafia families over the last few days. You know, the Northern Research Group, the European Research Group, the New Conservatives. I mean, that's just three of them. It started at the weekend with a briefing to the Mail on Sunday that they were plotting in a Sicilian restaurant, kind of setting up that mafia theme. And it ended up with um, the head of the ERG, Marc Francois, blaming the media. This is what um, he said, slightly pimped up by us. I have just chaired a meeting of what you in the media are now referring to as the five families. Not totally yeah. sure what the politics is for the Conservative Party, giving the impression that they are a bunch of feuding mafiosa families and that maybe Rishi Sunak will have a horse in his bed overnight. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> First of all, oh, I love that movie, The Godfather. Um Yes, well, I like uh, Marc Francois a lot. He used to be part of my Treasury team when I was Shadow Chancellor, and we are friends. Uh, but he is no Don Corleone, it has to be said. I don't think these different groups inside the Conservative Party are quite uh, as powerful as some of those mafia families. I mean, there's a kind of <laughs> misnomer. I was going through it the other day. These five, so-called five families, these five groupings. There's the European Research Group, but they don't do any research. There's the Common Sense Group. Well, they have little <laughs> common sense. There's the Conservative Growth from. Group, and they usually support things that are going to stop growth in our country. There's the New Conservatives, and they want to take us back to the past. And then the one group I, I do support and like are the Northern Research Group. But the way this lot are going, there won't be many Northern Tory MPs. So, I, I mean, it, it feels like, we were talking about it last week, weren't we, that the kind of civil war was starting to reopen and the five different groupings were kind of trying to hold the uh, Prime Minister to ransom. But I think to Rishi Sunak's credit, he held the line and he called their bluff. He didn't really change anything. He gave some hints or, or sort of, not hints is the wrong word. He, he said, I might change the bill later as it goes through Parliament. But he stuck to his guns and then won pretty handsomely. And, you know, the one thing those mafia families should never do is threaten to go to the mattresses and then uh, lie down in bed. It's interesting because you know, it would have been the first defeat for the government at a second reading, the beginning of a bill in Parliament since Sunday trading in the mid-1980s. I mean, it would be a huge thing for them to have actually voted against it. Were they really ever going to, to do so? But as you say, because it was so hyped up and you had Robert Jenrick, the former immigration minister, say he couldn't support this bill, Sweller Braverman competing with him to lead the charge, Marc Francois as well, they gave such an impression that they were going to defeat this bill that when they then chose to abstain, it did actually look like they'd bottled it. It's a really good example of that classic political mistake of issuing a threat that you're not prepared to carry out. And I thought the Conservative rebels overreached. You know, they said they were having their star chamber, which is a, you know, ridiculous to compare Bill Cash's uh, chairing of a bunch of Tory MPs to the medieval star chamber of the Tudor court, I think is a bit, a bit of a far-fetched uh, comparison. But, you know, they were threatening to withhold their support 
and and they were demanding concessions from the prime minister and the prime minister didn't give them any he gave them a tiny tiny very thin ladder to climb down saying that he would entertain amendments to tighten the bill but it had to be consistent with the government's approach and it had to be consistent with our international legal obligations and he held the line and and as a result they blinked and you know that's not good that's not that's not good if you're trying to demonstrate the power of the conservative right and the fact it's all quite fractious on the conservative right the fact there are five families or five groupings you know sort of shows that they're not the organized force that they were in the in the run up to the uh, fall of Theresa May and Boris Johnson coming in where also they had a one massive and crucial advantage which was that it was almost a hung parliament it was only a very very narrow majority that Theresa May had after 2017 election so they had real purchase with here's quite a big conservative majority it's quite hard on this issue to find something you'd also get the Labour Party support you on. So, you know, in the end, it was, um, as I say here in America, big hat, but no cattle. <laughs> the the thing, though, is, I mean, where does this go when this bill comes into um, the Commons again in January, February, even before the Lords? I mean, it's clear the Home Secretary, James Cleverly, I interviewed him this week on Good Morning Britain. He's clearly very, very kind of uncomfortable with um, where he's ended up. We know what he thinks about this um, this whole Rwanda scheme off the record. The One Nation that, group... That he, he thinks it's batshit. <laughs> so he thinks it's batshit, I know. Look, I've spent three days being told that Ofcom guidelines prevent me saying batshit on television, so I have uh, to... Um, not on political I mean, currency. We are free. We're like, you know, like those Conservative groups dream, Ed. We are we, free of bureaucracy. We are free of red tape. We are free of the uh, nanny state. I keep saying, you know, I keep forgetting I'm on live television and turning to Susanna Reid and saying, so am I not allowed to say batshit? And then in my ear, the director is saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I then have to turn to the camera and say, I'm very sorry. I do apologise. I've just stepped outside the Ofcom guidelines. I'm sure it's a complete accident when you do that. A complete accident. But what is going to to happen? See, there is another group called the One Nation Conservatives, who um slightly odd, actually, because... Uh, there are three or four nations rather than one nation. So which is the nation they particularly care about? Do they not care about Scotland and Wales? And even It's a Northern reference, Ireland? people would probably be interested. It's a reference to Benjamin Disraeli, the 19th century Conservative Prime Minister, who spoke at the time, wrote a book at the time, a novel about two nations, the rich and the poor, who, who didn't know each other and sort of passed each other in the street. And that from that came the concept of sort of centre-leftish group in the Conservatives that are one-nation Conservatives. I remember because Tony Blair tried to steal it and talked about um, a one-nation Labour Party as well. That was before devolution had really become entrenched in the United Kingdom. But there is, you know, the one-nation are clear. They won't give any more ground. They don't want the government to make any concessions. It's hard to see how Rishi Sunak and James Cleverley can keep the five right factions on side without giving something. Although, as Rishi Sunak has said, anything that they give further would mean that Rwanda would walk away from this on the grounds that this was breaking international law. So, I mean, is this a stalemate? Is it something that he can call the bluff of the right groups on in the new year? Or is this going to become a deferred big mess, which, by the way, is costing I mean, now hundreds of millions of pounds. I mean, the bill's gone up from £140 million a few days ago to £300 million plus. Well, I think there'll be a bit more parliamentary drama, to answer your question, uh, when we get to what's called the uh, committee stage and the report stage. But I think a bit like 
what we saw this week, it will end up being nothing. And the idea that the Conservative MPs is going to, are going to vote against the third reading of the bill, which is when it finally passes the Commons, that's for the birds. That is never, ever going to happen. So now I think we should focus, and people will focus, on the real issue, which is not whether this legislation gets through Parliament, or at least gets through the House of Commons, but whether the policy is actually going to work, and what will it do to deliver on Rishi Sunak's pledge, which he doubled down on this week, I noticed, of stop the boats. Although he's now saying uh, eventually stop the votes, ultimately stop the votes. So he's beginning to kind of caveat that pledge of his. So I, I think we turn from the parliamentary drama, the rights bluff has been called to the real world situation, which Sunak will be judged on at the general election. I mean, of course, that's right. Of course, the proper debate is how we control legal and illegal migration in a way which is um, is fair and legal but effective. And that is what Labour and Conservative voters want. Everybody wants this to be to be managed. But he's looked a bit tetchy um, over the last few weeks. But one thing from Rishi Sunak's point of view, the debate in Parliament did do this week was divert attention away from his appearance at the COVID inquiry. He would have been preparing for that for months, I'm sure, but it didn't actually make the headlines, did it? It didn't. And I think when we were talking last week, we were saying this is quite a big test for the Prime Minister. By the way, it's also a reminder, I thought, of the difference between the Prime Minister and every other job in the Cabinet, including the Chancellor. You know, Jeremy Hunt gets to deliver his autumn statement and then disappear for a few weeks. If you're the Prime Minister, you're constantly on. On Monday, he's doing this big public inquiry. Tuesday, he's trying to get his legislation through Parliament. It's a constant, constant pressure on a Prime Minister. And I think Sunak will be pretty pleased to have got to the end of this week. He sailed through the COVID inquiry and looked perfectly competent, answered the questions that were put to him. He got his legislation through Parliament. The only thing that will be worrying him, we might come back to this later in the show, is that uh, the latest economy numbers were not very strong. So that's a kind of herald of trouble to come. But I think it will also be noticing in Downing Street something about Keir Starmer. So there's been a lot of headlines about the Conservative poll rating being particularly low. Sunak hits a new low. Sunak's as unpopular as Boris Johnson was when Boris Johnson fell. That's all true. But Keir Starmer's personal ratings have also been falling. And I looked at this. I was absolutely astonished. I checked this out yesterday. So Keir Starmer is currently on a net favorability, what people think of him, are they positive or negative, of minus 22%. So that's a lot better than Rishi Sunak, who's on minus 49%, Keir Starmer would say in his defense. But minus 22% for an opposition leader at this point is very low for one who wants to win an election. In the case of Tony Blair a year before he won his election, he was plus 19%. And David Cameron, okay, so people say, oh, Blair's special and he was, you know, particular moment in history. David Cameron was plus 16% net favourability as opposition leader a year before the general election. And Keir Starmer is minus 22%. And those ratings are falling at the moment. They're not getting better for Starmer. And that is something which I don't think is getting much attention at the moment. But in Downing Street, there will be all eyes on those numbers. So Keir Starmer's personal numbers have consistently been lower than the Labour numbers over the last two or three years. And, you know, we've talked before about how, in part, that reflects the very short time he's been having to change the Labour Party, but also the sort of lack of excitement 
about um, politics and the future at the moment in Britain. And that is is a problem for the opposition because you want people to feel the kind of upbeat sense of the future that Tony Blair certainly managed to achieve in 1996-97. But the trend in the number will also concern them because, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence from other countries around the world of parties who lose leads in the run-up to general elections. But part of the reason why that might happen would be if your party leader was losing standing. My guess is that this trend in the last few weeks will be particularly around what's been happening in Israel-Gaza and the stance that Keir Starmer took on that issue, refusing to support a ceasefire, whipping his uh, MPs to oppose the ceasefire motion, a big rebellion he faced. Can I, but Guy Bressy, is that because it looked like he wasn't in control of his party or that or people suddenly saw some divisions in Labour which they hadn't seen for a while? Or was it because the ceasefire is a popular cause amongst the British public? I think it's most likely that there are some left voters who want him to support a ceasefire and have gone along with the Keir Starmer leadership over the last few years. And this is something which is causing them great upset and they just withhold their support and that's reflected in the polls. And then, of course, there will be the same thing happening in Muslim communities in seats across the UK as well. We know that's been happening too. And um, the calculation his people will make is, well, you know, we can manage this the left voters will come back to us. Those Muslim seats tend to be larger Labour majorities in cities. But I think if I was Keir Starmer, I would be interrogating my experts very hard. You know, are we getting this right? Is there a danger that um, this could do electoral damage to us? And do we need to shift position? I think on both sides of the Atlantic, the president... Joe Biden in his own party, Keir Starmer in his own party, have come under pressure on the Israel-Gaza issue. But maybe both of them are starting to see that they need to to respond to that pressure a little bit. I mean, I think Biden has been sending signals to Netanyahu that um, you know his stance needs to change on targeting civilians. And then we had the interview last night um, from the Israeli ambassador in the UK, Zippy Hotavoli, who cast doubt on the two-state solution as being something that Israel today supports. And that, the, you know, the Balfour Declaration, the two-state solution, is so absolutely central to the way in which, I think not just Labour, but British politics thinks about um, supporting Israel. We should hear what she had to say because it's quite striking. Here's her interview with Sky News. Is she there did. still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realise that Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but, of October and we need to build a new one. And in order to do, build a new one... does that new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own? Does, think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realised on the 7th of October. Though? The answer is absolutely no and I'll tell you why. Well then because how can there the be moment, peace? In, no, how can there be peace you, in the reason there is no peace Israel. is because the Palestinians... How could, without offering... Mark, a state to Palestine. How Mark, can there be peace in Israel? Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state solution connect- is dead. Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked, that created this radical people in the other side? Why are you obsessed with that? I mean, that is pretty astonishing because that is Israel's ambassador. She's clearly not 
that's not a slip of the tongue. That's a well-argued point of view that she has. You've got to assume she is reflecting the position of her government. She's a very smart diplomat. And it absolutely goes counter to what all of Israel's allies in the West are currently urging on Israel. And it goes counter, doesn't it, to the sort of central paradigm of how the West sees this problem going forward, that ultimately there will be an Israeli state and a separate independent sovereign Palestinian state alongside it. And well, for all the setbacks that have happened over the decades in trying to bring that about, that's the long-term goal. And there you've got the Israeli government saying, forget it. It's interesting. There was a um, a very thoughtful thread on um, Twitter, on X, earlier in the week from Tom Fletcher, former diplomat, former advisor to to Labour governments as a civil servant, who was pointing out that back in 2009, the issue of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas was being debated. The then Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, instructed the UK shift from abstaining to voting for a ceasefire. The US were furious about that, but then shifted their position from opposing to an abstention. And if you are Keir Starmer, also, if you are Rishi Sunak, worried about what's happening in Israel, but hearing the Israeli ambassador moving away from the two-state solution, I mean, the politics is a very, very complicated and it's a very different situation in Israel and Gaza now because of the terrible events of the 7th of October. But um, I don't think 100% support for Netanyahu and the approach he is taking to the conflict, I don't think that is set in stone in the UK from either Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak at all and uh, things can change and of course the interesting thing is here we are talking about the big foreign policy crisis of the moment which is israel gaza and we're not or we're about we haven't been talking about ukraine and i think one of the interesting consequences of israel gaza and the events in october is that the world's attention has shifted away from that conflict that of course is uh, costing people's lives every single day on the battlefields of eastern europe in Ukraine. And you really feel that here in the United States. And we're going to turn to that next. So you're in New York, and just a couple of hundred miles further south, the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky, is on his third trip to Washington, trying to persuade Congress to back Joe Biden's call for more finance to support the war in Ukraine with Russia, and facing a more challenging circumstance than when he was um, back in Washington previously. This is what he said this week. And you can count on Ukraine, and we hope just as much to be able to count on you. So I think it's interesting in the British context where there is zero political debate, frankly, about whether or not to support Ukraine. Everyone is united that we should. And Britain has been very forward-leaning in providing military assistance to Ukraine. But here in the United States, there's a really fierce debate going on about whether to sustain the huge American contribution to the Ukrainian war effort. And part of it is a sort of tactical debate that's going on inside the Congress here. Obviously, people are very familiar with the divided politics. The Republicans are trying to get Joe Biden to make steps to strengthen border security with Mexico because they've got a similar asylum and refugee situation in that it's very 
difficult politics here. So the Republicans are demanding tougher southern border controls, as they put it, in return for supporting aid packages, not just to Ukraine, but also to Israel. There's a lot of American military assistance going to Israel, we should say. Uh, So there's partly a kind of classic Washington deal making going on. But it's also a growing feeling in parts of the Republican Party, not least Donald Trump's part of the Republican Party. And of course, he is still the favorite to be the candidate and quite possibly the president in a year's time, who have basically said, let's spend money on uh, you know problems here at home. This money on Ukraine is being wasted. There's never going to be an end to this war. And Zelensky is really there in Washington to try and keep that vital American lifeline going for his country. And it's not just Republican opinion. Why the public opinion in America is moving in a more sceptical direction of the cost and whether America should be engaging um, in the way that they, they have been supporting Zelensky in Ukraine. It's partly, isn't it, about whether things are seen to be going well. A year ago, there was real expectation that um, Ukraine was going to to push back, that Putin was weakening, that he was in trouble. But the evidence is that um, things haven't gone so well. In fact, uh, part of the challenges Mr Zelensky has faced internally is his own military leaders talking about there being a stalemate. And it's it's harder to sustain international support when it feels as though the campaign's not progressing. I think we're all trapped in a Second World War narrative about conflict, which we all grew up with, which is you you start on the back foot, it's your darkest hour, you look like you're going to lose, and then you rally your forces and you defeat the enemy and you defeat evil. And we've seen so many movies that follow that story, but real world conflicts don't follow that uh, narrative. And in the case of Ukraine, it was staggering that Ukraine managed to defend itself against the full might of the Russian military machine when it invaded just under two years ago. And then I think everyone got carried away and said, OK, fine, they're now going to drive the Russians all the way to the Urals. And that hasn't happened. And we've got a really bitter, bloody stalemate that resembles bits of the First World War with trenches and bunkers and very, very high casualty rate. And it's essentially stuck. People want the kind of fairy tale ending where hero Zelensky kicks the Ruskies back to Moscow. And it's not happening. And uh, that is, I'm afraid, what often happens in wars. They don't have neat solutions and neat endings, and the good guys don't always win. I wonder whether it's that the narrative is wrong, that Second World War narrative, or just that with hindsight, in a sort of movie-type way, people expect this all to be over in you know a few months or two-and-a-half-hour movie reel, whereas in fact what we know is it's long and very hard, and you have to prepare the ground both for the cost of war, but also the dangers of defeat. And if you think back to that Second World War narrative around kind of blood, toil, tears and sweat, the darkest hour, fighting them on the beaches, that was at a time where Churchill was telling people it's hard and it's going to get harder. But he also talked all the time about the dangers of defeat. And if you're Putin thinking, well, you know, is the West getting a bit wobbly? If you're the Chinese looking at the pusillanimity of American foreign policy as they might perceive it towards Ukraine, that is potentially emboldening. And have we done enough? Did Zelensky do enough to tell people how hard it's going to be as opposed to talking up 
the possibility of success? And did Western leaders do enough to talk up to their populations the dangers of defeat and what that might spark in the rest of the world? I wonder whether we just assumed the movie script was going to take its course and it would all be over quickly. Yeah, I think there's a lot in what you say. I think the sort of trip to Kiev and uh, you know, standing with Zelensky uh, became a bit of a photo op for Western leaders. And I'm not sure they have really prepared the ground for not just the fact that this is a long, difficult conflict against a very powerful enemy, Russia, nor for the point that you're making, which is there are much wider ramifications for Western security about deterring Russian aggression in other parts of Eastern Europe, including against NATO allies, about deterring Chinese action in the uh, South China Seas and the Taiwan Straits. And to be fair to, to Joe Biden uh, he and the American administration, and to be fair to Rishi Sunak and most European leaders, they are making now these points. But I think we were all led to believe there was going to be a great Ukrainian military victory this year. And going into the winter again, I think we're going to have to have an expectations reset. But it would be tragic, certainly to my mind, if US support was cut off. And we are quite close to a deadline on whether the very substantial amount of money, the $60 billion that Joe Biden is trying to provide Ukraine will be sent. And in the European Union, there's another crunch summit happening right now about aid for Ukraine. That's also caught up in some inter-EU politics about their budget and uh, some domestic politics in Germany about problems with their domestic spending. And it's also caught up with a, a, a row amongst different EU leaders about whether the long-term plan is indeed for Ukraine ever to join the EU with countries like Hungary, or at least the prime ministers of places like Hungary and uh, Slovakia, speaking out and saying, no, 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 we're not in favour of Ukraine ultimately being a member of the EU. We haven't seen that American trend coming into British politics yet at all. But we were just talking a couple of weeks ago about the victory of Geert Wilders, the far-right leader in the Netherlands. And it's not just in Eastern Europe where there's the potential for a pushback against that European consensus as it was about supporting Ukraine and financing the war in Ukraine. Is there any possibility that next year the debate in the Conservative Party or in the British Parliament could start to have the kind of Ukraine dimension that we've seen in the Democrat-Republican battle in the US Congress? I think it's unlikely. But you're right to point out something interesting, which is, for most of my political career, the opposition to wars and Western support for conflicts in places like Iraq and Afghanistan came from the left, the Stop the War Coalition, the Jeremy Corbyn lot. And here, in, if you look at the opposition to ongoing support for Ukraine, it's coming from nationalist right-wing conservative leaders in Europe and from the Republicans in America. And they're deploying, a, uh, many of them, a kind of classic, like, let's spend the money at home. There's the kind of Thatcherite, Reaganite right, which is we need to defend the free world and we need to promote liberty around the planet. And then there's that different conservative strand which has long been part of our history as well, which is the Little Englander, they used to be called Blue Water Conservatives, which is, you know, let's just stick in our island and not meddle in world affairs and not spend a load of money abroad. And I don't see that emerging. I don't, I don't think any of the five families we were talking about in this show are yet saying, pull the plug on Ukraine. 
But it's certainly something to keep an eye on. And look, Nigel Farage speculating this week about whether he might rejoin the Conservatives Mm. before the next election if there was a change of leader. I actually asked him about that on Good Morning Britain earlier in the week while he was out recovering from his jungle adventure. And he was he was very clear that he wasn't ruling out that prospect at all. He said, you know, not at this time. He himself, early in the conflict, was taking a rather more Putin-esque position, rather more Trumpian position. And, you know, if he decided to start whipping this up through um, the Reform Party and that platform, that could start to creep into um, conservative debates. Yes, the reform being, in case you haven't heard of it, the UKIP successor, which is starting to go up in the polls. But I thought one of the most interesting and sort of straw in the wind for me of what might be coming were the comments of a senator called J.D. Vance. He's a senator from Ohio. He's a pretty young man. People might have heard of him before because he wrote this amazing childhood memoir called Hillbilly Elegy, which was turned into a movie, which was all about growing up in... Appalachia amongst um, sort of poor white Americans. And he was trying to explain why people like Trump had purchased in those communities. It's a very thoughtful book. Very thoughtful book. He then threw his lot in with Donald Trump, having been against Donald Trump, a fierce critic of Donald Trump. And uh, he. A less thoughtful thing to do. Well, it was frankly the only way he was going to get ahead in the Republican Party. Shades a bit of Keir Starmer serving in Corbyn's shadow cabinet. And I think people tick off JD Vance, but this is a man who. He's got his eyes on the White House, not this time round, but in the future. And uh, this is what he says on Ukraine, because I think it's a pretty interesting sign of where American politics might be going. Well, I, I think if you look at how mismatched the militaries are, there's really no pathway to peace that doesn't run through some negotiation. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying it was good that Russia invaded Ukraine. I'm not saying it's good that Ukraine has to give up territory. Uh, but they have made no significant progress despite hundreds of billions of dollars of American aid. Uh, is another $100 billion really going to accomplish anything, or will it take Ukraine further down the pathway of becoming effectively a dependent of the United States of America? Of course, um, Europe tried negotiating with Putin over Ukraine a decade ago, and it didn't go very well. Well, I think what people will, I hope, gather from that clip from Vance is, you know, this is not some crazy guy. This is a very thoughtful American politician, possibly with a very big future ahead of him in the United States. He's someone I've known for a long time before he was in politics. And in fact, I threw a dinner for him in London this summer. And he's just pointing out what I think a lot of people will start to think, which is, what is the actual end game on Ukraine? And at the moment, this is a, this is a conversation that dare not speak its name. A couple of times over the last year or so, people have voiced it. The late Henry Kissinger, who we were talking about on this show a couple of weeks ago and whose funeral is later this week in America, you know, he got himself into trouble. I mean, not that I think it particularly bothered him when he said, look, ultimately there's going to have to be a negotiated solution and there's going to be a Russian sphere of influence in parts of Ukraine. President Macron, you might remember, got into trouble about a year ago when he too said, look, We're going to have to think ultimately of some kind of negotiation with Russia. No one wants to hear it. And if you ask the British Prime Minister or you ask the Labour leader, should there be a negotiation with Russia? They say, absolutely not. But what Senator Vance is saying is that if this stalemate continues, then there's got to be some kind of route to end the conflict. It's all very well. We're here sitting comfortably doing our podcast and people commenting on this in Britain and Washington. But there are thousands of Ukrainian men dying 
on the battlefield? And is there ultimately an end game that doesn't involve sitting down with Putin? And is there an end game now which really we can realistically foresee that involves Russia leaving places like the Crimea and Donbass, where they're well entrenched? Look, we're sitting here on a podcast having this conversation, but of course, um, this is firmly in the intray of the new foreign secretary, who was actually out in Washington urging Congress to continue to back Ukraine. I've got to ask you, do you think this thought might be in his mind? Well, I think David Cameron, his first visit was to Kyiv to show support for Zelensky. And uh, he was in Washington, as you say, uh, trying to keep Republicans committed to the cause. People should know of David that just over a year ago, he he drove an aid truck from London. He drove it himself all the way to Ukraine to bring support and assistance to the people there. So he feels very, very strongly about it. And at the moment, I don't think you'd get a Western foreign minister, including David Cameron, or a Western leader of a large country openly speculating about a negotiation with Russia to bring the Ukrainian conflict to an end. But my prediction for 2024 is that those calls are going to start to grow. And as we've often said on this podcast about other issues, if you don't talk about something that's clearly there in the ether, that's clearly a reality that people are going to have to at least address, and they may choose to reject it, but they need to address it, then that becomes, that creates a a gap in politics, and that's not a good thing. I'm sure you're right, those calls will grow. And uh, I'm sure that people will also say that if you try and do a deal with Putin, there's no deal that sticks and he'll just come back for more. And that will certainly be the the Zelensky Ukrainian view. That is why this is so difficult even to discuss, let alone to strategize over. But uh, really interesting. We're going to take a break now and then we're going to talk about what George is discovering in New York about the plight of the London stock market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I'm here in New York visiting Wall Street, and it's quite a tale of two economies at the moment. Britain and the US. In Britain, you'll have seen perhaps this week that the economy shrank in October by 0.3%, surprised everyone, just shows how weak things are still in the UK. And there's a big debate about how to get the economy going there. 
Uh, here in the US, uh, there's quite a lot of exuberance, uh, to use a, an old uh, economic phrase. And the suggestion from the chair of the Fed, the chair of the central bank here, that interest rates have hit their peak, have uh, powered American stocks still further. And there's another debate going on, which is, is London, that great financial center, losing out to America in terms of where companies list, where companies who go public choose to base themselves? And there's been a string of stories in the press over the last couple of years of British companies, not always household names, but important companies like Arm, who is a chip manufacturer. We've all got Arm chips in our phones, choosing to list in America. And that was a great British success story. Uh, there's a talk about a financial services firm called Marex that was trying to list in London, now going to try and list in New York. And it's created quite a lot of paranoia, if you like. Uh, amongst the financial community in London about whether London's losing its status as the global centre of capital markets. I mean, the stock exchange was always thought to be the jewel in the crown of the British economy, and it is currently in the doldrums. And um, as you said, in the immediate here and now, of course, stock markets are doing better in America because the economy is growing, whereas in Britain at the moment, slightly behind America, contracting at this point. Taking a longer-term view over the last few years the stock market has underperformed compared to America. Although the experts say, if you actually look at the composition of um, stocks and shares, like for like, British stocks have been doing as well as American stocks. It's just that we have more people listed on the London market in things like finance or oil or defences, which have been doing less well, and that the growth is happening in the sort of more dynamic tech sector, which is... um, where there's less likely to be listings in London. But that then goes to your kind of deeper point, which is why are all these firms not only choosing to list in New York rather than London, but some of them are even talking about moving their listing out of London. There's been a huge fall in the number of listings on the London Stock Exchange this year compared to recent years. It's been going down for five or six, seven years now. Is that happening because our economy is doing less well? Is it happening because there's some kind of Brexit effect going on? Or is, as I think much more likely, what's happening here is that in the new dynamic tech growth sectors of the economy, people are looking at London and saying, actually, we get a better deal. It's a better platform. It's a deeper, richer capital market with more savings available if we go to New York. And it's bad for London to look like it's not the place to be if you're in the new dynamic sectors of the future. So I think there was a case maybe 10, 15 years ago where people said, you know, London is going to eclipse New York. And that's definitely not the feeling now. It doesn't mean that London doesn't have enormous strengths. But if you look at our stock market, if you look at our FTSE, it's full of companies, wonderful, great British companies, uh, often with a big global presence, but ones that you know have been around for quite a few decades. HSBC, AstraZeneca, which is the uh, came out of the old uh, ICI, uh, the oil companies like BP and Shell, and a whole host of other such firms. Whereas what powers the American stock market are companies that didn't exist 20 years ago. Also, like Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, the chip manufacturer, which is the new member of the Magnificent Seven. That's the name given to these big tech stocks. And it is interesting, I guess, you know, so you can find particular reasons why London may not be attracting some of the listings. There are tighter rules about how you have to list in London. Uh, You can't have exotic share structures of 
different classes of shares, or it's much harder to do that, which means that founders of companies can't keep control of them. It's said that the investors in these companies are a bit more conservative in London. They want their dividend, and that's what they really care about rather than investment in the future. I think that is all true. And you pointed to the technology revolution that has happened in the US. But doesn't it speak to a kind of wider issue for Britain, ultimately, which is why are we not the home to one of these magnificent seven? Why is the UK, and it would be true of other European countries, why have we not been the leading force in the growth of these incredible tech companies over recent decades? I was talking yesterday to an old colleague of mine at the Treasury, Sriti Vadira, who is um, actually now chair of the Prudential, kind of knows the city financial community so well. And I was asking her, you know, is there some kind of Brexit effect going on? Is it about the detail of regulation? And she was saying, look, at the margin, us not being so connected into this big European financial market is a bit of a negative, but that fundamentally, it's not really about the rules or the regulation, that that's a bit of a red herring. The, The bigger thing is that, as you said, American investors at the moment are more inclined to bet on risk, to to back people who want to do innovative, dynamic things. And in the UK, if you're listing, there's much more caution, much more risk aversion. You're more likely to be answering questions about kind of corporate governance or ESG, your kind of environmental, social kind of performance, rather than whether you're going to deliver the bigger returns. I thought the other thing which was really interesting that she said to me was 25 years ago when we were working together, at that time, private equity was a very small part of the UK economy. It's grown hugely over the last 10, 15 years. And if you and are- that's just a- Sorry, just to interrupt that, Ed, for people who don't necessarily know, private equity is is the opposite of what we're talking about. That's when a company is kept private, that they get money from a private equity business rather than from listing and from lots of retail shareholders. Exactly. And what the fund managers, the people who manage our pensions, have been deciding over the last decade or so, that if you're looking for return, if you're looking for growth, that rather than looking to invest in a company listed on the stock exchanges, it's more likely you'll get growth if you put your money into a private equity fund who then invests directly in those companies outside of the listed world. That is where the growth and the dynamism comes from. So it's not only an America versus Britain, it's listing versus not being listed and going for the private equity solution as well. And that somehow we've got to find a way to make... um, raising money in London, but also listing in London, something which is more supportive of people who want to innovate and take risk, or we're going to see London exchanges continue to um, decline. And the problem is so many wider services in the financial world, people who are creating jobs and paying taxes, depends upon the activity happening in in London. And uh, if it's going elsewhere, if it's happening outside the listed world... We pay a cost for that. If you want to be a bit more optimistic about things, I had conversations with a couple of big American finance chiefs yesterday, and they were saying, you know, things aren't as bad as you make out as a country in the UK. You're a bit down on yourselves, Brits. You've got amazing universities. You've got great life sciences industry or entertainment and sports franchises are incredible. And some of your technology companies are really impressive too. So so don't talk yourself down. 
that actually takes me to a different conversation I had with somebody else about the London Stock Exchange, because we think of the London Stock Exchange as being the people who run the stock exchange where the shares are listed and traded. Actually, today, the Financial Times was setting this out just a few weeks ago in the paper. Only 4%, less than 4% of the revenues of the London Stock Exchange Group actually comes from listing and trading cash equities in London. It's fundamentally changed from being a business which runs a stock exchange to an international data analytics company trading all over the world, but in a whole different speciality. Two thirds of their revenue, and more than that, comes from this new data analytics um, world, which, which is great. But the question is, are they the right people to be running the stock exchange? I think if I was Jeremy Hunt, if I was Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, I would be asking myself, do we now have owners of the London Stock Exchange who are a global business in data analytics, maybe a leading business, but actually have decided that um, the stock exchange itself is not really a priority for them, tiny part of their business? Now, you might say, so what? They're successful, they're paying tax, they're creating jobs. And maybe we don't need a big, dynamic, successful London Stock Exchange. But if you think it matters having a successful London Stock Exchange, a place where people want to list, you want an owner who thinks that's really important, a central part of their business. And I think other stock exchanges around the world have owners for whom that's the priority. Maybe part of our problem is that at the moment it's no longer a priority for the London Stock Exchange Group. I think, to be fair to them, they're the ones agitating for some regulatory changes, which the government have promised after a series of reviews and the like, but which have been slow to come and that would make it easier for London to capture some of that business that's found its way across the Atlantic. So on to questions. Thank you again. We've had a, a really amazing response from you. And please keep sending in your questions, comments, uh, thoughts on the show to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. UK. Our first question this week, I'm going to read it out, comes from Alistair. Could Ed press George a little more about the impact of austerity on health outcomes of the pandemic, given what Patrick Valance, Sajid Javid and others have said during the COVID inquiry? He points out that uh, Javid in his evidence said the NHS runs at pretty much 100% capacity, which is unlike many other countries. This has been a running issue under successive governments, and the whole NHS model needs to be looked at. That's what Sajid Javid said at the inquiry. What do you think? Well, look, there is a debate which we're going Alice to is have about. To press me. Well, I am going to press you, but I'm going to <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put to you a proposition yes, and see on. what you think. Look, we could have a debate about did austerity work to get the debt down. That's a different issue. We could have a debate about whether you got the right balance of taxation going up rather than spending cuts. But this is particularly about the NHS. And was the NHS in a weaker position in 2019? And I go back to um, the 2010 general election in which um, you and David Cameron pledged, we'll cut the deficit, not the NHS. And your strategy was to, to ring fence the NHS from austerity, not to have cuts. That's what you set out to do. I guess what I would say is that um, not having cuts in the NHS turn out to be not enough. That the scale of the NHS, the ageing population, technological advance meant it needed more than simply to be 
protected from real terms cuts. If you look at the NHS since the 1950s, it grew on average a year its real term spending by over 3%. Because of the tax rise we put in place in 2001, the NHS grew in the Labour years by 5.5%. In that period from 2010 to 2019, it grew by just 1.4%, half the historic average, less than a third of the growth under Labour. And the consequence was that there were fewer doctors and nurses, there were fewer beds than other countries, waiting times rose, there was less machinery available per patient. And so, of course, it was the case in 2019, you had an overstretched, underinvested in service, which wasn't able to deal with the pandemic. And I just think that's what the facts tell us. Okay, well, obviously, I would challenge that. And without kind of rehearsing the exchanges we used to have across the dispatch box, I'd point out the number of doctors and nurses went up, and there's now a record number of those different professions working in the health service. There was a big increase in treatments in the NHS. And by 2019, despite the challenges that you face in healthcare of ever-rising costs and people demanding more and more treatments, the NHS was doing okay. But beds per thousand people went down and waiting times went up. I think there's a kind of interesting question, which I would kind of pose to you on this, which is, let's say the NHS budget had been double, which obviously is totally unrealistic. But let's say you spent twice as much money on the NHS as we were spending as a nation. Would that have made a massive difference to how Britain handled COVID? Because otherwise, there were countries with much higher percentages of GDPs being spent on healthcare than uh, the UK. And they also had very difficult experiences with COVID. And I think there was a political consensus between Labour governments and Conservative and coalition governments that we wouldn't spend money on large, empty hospital wards. In other words, sort of empty spare capacity beds in the NHS that were just waiting to be occupied in emergencies. And all of the pressure at the moment both under the Blair-Brown governments and most recently under the Sunak government, has been to push healthcare down into the community, into the primary care providers like the GPs, now into the pharmacies. So I think even in a kind of mythical world where you were spending double the NHS budget, I don't think it would have made a big difference in how we handle COVID. It might make a difference to other bits of health outcomes and, and how the health service performs. But very specifically on covid I think it was a set of other decisions which were examined at the inquiry around lockdowns and public health policy rather than bed capacity. Anyway, Alistair, we will continue to have this debate because one thing we should just have noticed is that, of course, Sunak's getting to the end of the years without reducing the waiting list in the NHS, which is going to be quite a hot political issue next year. Maybe that was part of the consequence of his pre-pandemic inheritance. Um, We should return to this. Look, loads of people say we've got to discuss austerity and the economic arguments we had. And, you know, we've been focusing on the here and now and the future, but good to go back and retread some of these um, old debates. And I'm sure we can do that over the course of our podcast in 2024 as well. Next question is from Darren. I'm going to read this out. Did either of you see any of the appearances of the principals of um, universities, MIT, Harvard, pen in front of the United States Congress Committee last week. I think actually we can play a clip because this is um, a very striking moment when those university leaders were pressed by a US congresswoman, a Republican US congresswoman, and it's caused huge ructions in America, including the principal of Penn losing their job and the Harvard um, principal having a declaration of public support from um, 
her counsel, uh, which is always a worrying thing to have to have. I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric, when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct, and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. So this has caused uh, a real earthquake in the U.S. university establishment. You and I, we both teach at American universities. Uh, You teach at Harvard. I teach, of course, at Stanford. And it is true that on these campuses, these rows over identity politics have become somewhat detached from reality. And so you do end up in this bizarre situation where these university leaders are kind of equivocating on whether calling for genocide amounts to bullying and harassment when, you know, if you call out people on their gender identity or on mental health issues, that's automatically and perhaps correctly seen as harassment. But calling for genocide, apparently not. It's always uh, terrible if you give testimony to a, um, a public committee like a House of Commons committee or congressional committee and then you have to apologize for what you said the next day and clarify your remarks and that's what the Harvard president had to do the next day that just tells you things have gone really really badly wrong and I think it's partly it was at the end of um, a long testimony and one of those classic mistakes you can make as a, um, a public figure, you focus on the person asking the question and you sort of are dismissing what they say because you don't like them and what they stand for. I'm sure with Elise Stefanik, that was party. She's quite a, a rising star, quite Trumpian congresswoman. And in retrospect, the direct answer to the question was, was so terrible because, of course, the answer is that you condemn calling for the genocide of Jews and take action. And quite why the president of Harvard had allowed herself to get into that position where she seemed that she had to kind of qualify and give weasel words around context. I think there's one other thing I would just like to say about the Harvard situation, because I've seen this over the last two or three years. It's always dangerous as an institution like a university to start taking public positions on political issues. I mean, they're not a political body. And they have Democrats and Republicans. They have people of all views. But when Donald Trump was elected, Harvard and senior Harvard figures were quite happy to say um, negative things about Donald Trump, even though he was the elected president of the United States during Black Lives uh, Matters, um, public statements about what's right and wrong from the university. And then the issue arises of the Hamas attack on Israel on the 7th of October, October or the Israel incursions into Gaza. And suddenly at that point, the university sort of wants to to be above it and not take a public position. And I'm afraid you kind of reap what you sow. If you decide when it's easy to go and start issuing public statements, then when you then choose not to do so, it becomes much harder. And part of the attack on the president of Harvard was that she was refusing to condemn the Hamas incursion and attacks on Israelis on the 7th of October, where to be consistent, of course, she should have done. So, um, they have got themselves into the most terrible, terrible mess. And anti-Semitism is on the rise in the campuses on both sides of the Atlantic. I think Jewish students feel scared at the moment, and they will have felt more scared because of what they heard um, the president of Harvard saying. Yeah, absolutely. And we should point out there's also 
some Islamophobia as well. People have seen some clips of that on university campuses is also pretty horrific. I think this whole question of identity politics is something we should return to in 2024. I think it's, it's, it's so brutal here in the US and it's causing enormous problems uh, for the social fabric and kind of uh, social unity. And is it going to come to the UK in a big way? Who knows? But the right saying that they want um, free speech when it's stopping left students, no platforming right-wing speakers is one thing. But if that then means that we are to be consistent allowing anti-Semitic things to be said in the name of free speech by other groups of students on campus, well, suddenly that feels to be unacceptable and you have to be consistent. The anti-cancel culture claims are usually they want to cancel the other side. <laughs> Who wants to cancel them anyway? Always. Uh, um, Always. Let's go to our final question, which comes from Mike. Hi, Ed and George. Uh, my name is Mike Heffernan, and I've really enjoyed listening to the frankness of your podcasts. My question to you both is that now that you've both left mainstream politics and joined what we'd call the outside world, would you say that there are benefits of becoming a politician after you've had real world experience, which I think was kind of more historically the norm? Do you think you would be a better politician now with your experience of the outside world? I think it's a very good question. And I've been thinking about it over the last couple of days. Would I be a different politician today at my age and having had my sort of post-political career? I think the answer is, of course, I would be. That doesn't mean I'd be necessarily a better politician. And of course, there are benefits to having real-world experience, but it can also mean when you come into politics late in life that you're actually rather underprepared for the political world and all that throws at you. Where I would kind of challenge you, Mike, is when you say, you know, it's not historically the norm. Some of our great political leaders, which, you know, maybe you're heroes or villains, you know, Winston Churchill, he's an MP in his late 20s. Gladstone's an MP in his early 20s. Thatcher was the youngest woman elected to Parliament when she became an MP. Tony Blair was the youngest MP for the Labour Party when he was elected. And they didn't have a huge amount of real world experience, any of them. They had maybe been a barrister for a couple of years or a chemist for a couple of years. They weren't, you know, you couldn't say they'd had long experience outside politics. And they were very, very successful politicians and people, you know, are either fans or or don't like them to this day, but they were big, big political figures. So I, I, I question, I think there was a bit of a romantic view and it stems a bit from the post-war generation. It's true that the kind of Ted Heaths, Dennis Healy's of this world, Roy Jenkins, they had fought in the war, but that wasn't their choice. They'd been conscripted and that's how they'd had to spend their 20s. Here's another way of thinking about it. If the House of Commons was full of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, because you only had people who had uh, decades of real world experience, would we be a better governed place? I'm not sure we would. But you know too as well, George, quite a lot of people who have careers in business and then come into politics to be elected or to be a minister, they actually find it quite hard not to have had that. It's usually a disaster. It's normally a disaster. And, you know, we could probably name some names, mm. um, but we won't because we're um, older and wiser and don't want to kind of cause anybody any difficulties. But, you know, if I was needing an appendix operation, I would be really keen to have a qualified surgeon. And if the surgeon said to me, look, I'm a really good surgeon because I've seen the real world and I talked um, primary school for five years and I've experienced life in advertising and that's given me a rounded view, I would think, to be quite honest, I'd quite like it if you spent 
the last 10 years doing appendix operations so you actually knew what you were doing and people underestimate there is a professionalism to politics and there's things you learn and you have to make mistakes and the way in which you communicate and understanding risk and how to make decisions and not to jump to conclusions and when you see people who've spent less time in politics who get to senior officers more quickly sometimes you see that they find that quite hard so there is something to be said for having some experience as well i'd say experience of politics so uh thank you very much this is a very good question mike uh, maybe we'll a theme we might return to uh but please send some festively themed questions to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk that's all for this week see you next thursday This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.